abusive parents might still love their children. They're just really confused. They don't know what they're doing, and maybe they had their child too soon. So, like, when you have a four-year-old, if you beat your child, they just think you're doing that to help them. They don't realize what you're doing is wrong. So, when they go to their friend's house, and, you know, their child is, like, you know, jokingly being mean to their mom or their dad, and, you know, nothing happens to them, they start to wonder, huh, why, yes. why are my parents like this? Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Today, I decided to do an interview with my son, Gabriel, who is 10 years old. I speak a lot in the podcast about him. It is never intended to suggest that somehow I know better, but it feels more honest to open up about my experiences than always speak about clinical or hypothetical situations. The discussion with him was very moving for me. He opened up about parts of our relationship that I never knew. And as you'll hear, he also shared with me some hurt that I caused him that I was aware of but that I hadn't quite appreciated in terms of how he dealt with it. My hope in bringing him onto the podcast was to offer a firsthand experience from a child talking about what helps him and his friends feel safe. He was really excited after and talked about how much fun it was, and that warmed my heart as I didn't want him to feel co-opted in any way. As a preamble to our discussion, I wanted to perhaps speak a bit more technically about why it is important to go into the trenches as much as possible with our emotions, especially in relationships, because the neuroscience that supports it is clear and I believe very helpful. This may seem like a bit of a review from other podcasts, especially my interview on the polyvagal theory the work of neurologist Stephen Porges, who focuses on the regulatory nature of the nervous system, but I'd like to attempt to go through it in as simple and clear way possible, so that it is more obvious why some of the deliberate interventions that we can plan as parents and partners make sense. From the minute a child is conceived, the organism begins to organize itself around its environment. Of course, in the early moments, this has a tremendous amount to do with the nutritive function, which is why there is so much emphasis during pregnancy on getting the right minerals and vitamins, etc., as well as moderation in other areas. But the emotional environment begins to play a crucial role early on. 
One example that may seem a bit peripheral, but demonstrates just how plastic the growing child is, is evidence that if a child hears more than one language spoken outside of the womb, the structure of their jaws when they are born are already more malleable to be able to accept varieties of vowel formation and disparate sounds to be able to adjust to speaking various languages. This more concrete example illustrates nicely the need for our nervous system to be flexible as well. The basic building blocks of our nervous system have to do with unconscious processes that regulate our physiology. Sean Smith in my previous podcast spoke a lot about this with regard to the fact that we often use the washroom or take a drink of water without really thinking about it. Something drives us quite unconsciously to these activities so that we stay alive. Hostile environments, having to protect ourselves from threat, can shape our nervous system into continually having to keep these states of being in the on position. We see this in hypertension or even in language when someone says, you're getting on my nerves. The term neurotic which we use in popular language when we are fixated on something or making a joke about ourselves, oh, that's just my neuroses, literally comes from the modern Latin neuro, which means of nerves. And until the early 20th century, mental disorders were seen through a lens of neurological dysfunction. The pendulum, to an extent, has swung back in that direction where modern-day psychiatry is primarily focused on pharmacology, and affecting the neurosynapses in our brains, modulating either the production or inhibiting neurochemicals. There is an underlying theory that the human organism in a good enough developmental environment can do a lot of that regulation on its own. The late Jack Panksepp, a celebrated neurologist who developed a lot of the drugs that we currently use for depression and anxiety, said that he'll never be able to synthetically represent the way that our social function helps us regulate our emotions and brings us peace of mind. So to go back to the developing fetus then, and eventually the birth of the infant, the reason that there is so much focus primarily on the first three years of life, is because the foundation of the nervous system is being laid down. Trillions of neurons are being paired together, and the maxim neurons that fire together, wire together, is never more true in the human being's life. When we talk about imbalances, then, this is what we are referring to. A, a chronic maladaptation can emerge where, just like someone writing software, the preverbal child's nervous system is literally adapting and responding to the emotional valence of the environment, encoding it. And it's one of the key tools that it is using. Those tools are the primitive responses to emotions that the child has at their disposal, which in the beginning are primarily in the reptilian brain and increasingly in the limbic and the neocortex systems, which take about 30 years to grow. This is based on what's called the triune brain, with the reptilian, limbic, 
and neocortex forming the three parts of our brain, which is hierarchical, where the survival element, the oldest part of the mammalian brain, takes precedent in times of threat. When we talk about symbolizing the child's behavior and responses, this is literally the act of using the fully developed adult brain of the parent to interpret the more primitive responses of the child. Having Gabriel on my podcast today is an example of this, where I am using a meta process of analysis, which is this podcast, and hopefully synthesizing and thinking through with him more basic and younger responses to situations. That is why you'll hear me at times uh, being quiet and restrained when he is sharing something, even if I have a more adult response to it. I understand that it's important for it to have oxygen and to feel fully heard. You may have already had this thought as I was describing the fully developed adult brain, but if you think this through to its natural conclusion, if the adult has never experienced flexibility around their own pain with a previous caregiver or attachment figure, well, then they do not have it, period. Except if they learned it in therapy or with a safe attachment figure in a romantic relationship. Put another way, the software that I was talking about earlier is incredibly subjective, so that if a child had to learn very primitive ways of defending against vulnerability and helplessness when they were little, this is what exists in the adult. This is why there is such a high precedence of distress in relationships after children are born, because now the higher order mammal, the parent, is in the soup with a child who is mimicking basic emotions that are reminding the adult nervous system, quite unconsciously, of feeling states that may have not been touched in decades or may have never acquired language. I want to pause for a second and just define the difference between emotions and feelings because they are often used interchangeably, but I really like this definition. I learned this from Antonio Damasio in his book, Descartes' Error, and he talks about how emotions are that somatic, fundamental, felt sense that we have in our bodies, like hunger or sadness or being afraid. We physically feel it. Feelings are the thoughts and stories that we tell ourselves over time about those emotions, which actually cuts to the heart of what I'm talking about today. Culture and environment are what construct feelings about our emotions, which will further dictate the decisions that we make when we have a primary emotion in our body. The highest level of development for a higher order mammal and this comes from the work of many people, but is squarely in the work of Pat Ogden and Peter Levine, is the ability to recognize a strong emotion such as shame, feel its potency and pain, not shut down, get angry, numb out or dissociate from it, but know that we are loved enough and to reach out to someone and seek comfort and understanding. That can also be internalized where we have a good enough representation of an object in us that can engender compassionate self-talk, but that needs to have emerged from a relationship. 
The word object may seem strange here, but is used in psychoanalysis and psychology to really describe anything in our environment. And often it refers to caregivers, attachment figures, other adults, friends. You may have heard of object relations, which is the work of Melanie Klein, which talked a lot about how we relate to others, which will come into all of our relationships, which is why we might find ourselves reacting in very familiar ways to different people. The process of internalizing another object like a parent is called introjection, where I'm introjecting the psychological constitution of another, and that forms my internal relationship to my own somatic and physical signals in my body. Now, the opposite to feeling safe with my own signals, which can have many variations, is also true. If I hear enough times, and remember, the early child doesn't have language yet, so by hearing, I am also saying that the body can hear. If the growing organism senses distress for prolonged periods of time, it will get stuck in a chronic pattern of protection. This is why so much of what we see in the diagnosis of mental health has to do with conditions that are primarily attention-based. Moreover, the conditions have a strong component of how someone views themselves. When we get into psychosis, for instance, we start dealing with issues of paranoia, and when the psyche is really broken, we fail reality testing so that there is the belief that someone is out to get us, the laughter of the table at the restaurant is about us, and it can be very hard to navigate life at that level. Or worse, we need to be protected from ourselves and our primitive brain, which is just doing its job to save ourselves. I have said this before, but I like this idea a lot. The goal of our own development, whether through therapy or otherwise, is to be able to differentiate a real threat from a perceived threat. One of the ways this is accomplished, to go back to the beginning, is by availing ourselves as much as possible of the adult's ability to analyze and scrutinize situations and to repair them. This is what is meant by executive functioning, the neocortex. What is very interesting in this regard is that when we are born, the brain is developing, and more fibers at the beginning connect the limbic system to the reptilian brain, so going backwards, so that our fight or flight quickly triggers our heart rate and other basic means of saving ourselves, such as running away or fighting. That is why so many of these systems are very, very, very hard to combat once they are turned on because there is a strong connection to our survival. So fighting things like high blood pressure and other vigilances that are promoted in our nervous system are very, very difficult and intransigent. The parental relationship is what is contributing to the growing fibers and connection between these primitive responses and language and images. So safety, understanding, flexible and positive views of self. This precisely helps us understand why interventions, where we go back and we model vulnerability, working through our own humiliation and grief, helps show our children and their brains 
that it is possible to get out of deep and painful emotions through relationship, kindness, and understanding. Hope. The knowledge that I'm going to get out of this is a physical process in the brain. It keeps certain primitive responses at bay, and it helps us focus. Helps a child sit in their chair at school and not worry as much about something happening to them. Versus chronic conditions where the body thinks I'm under threat, and it says, sorry, I'm not going to let you pay attention to the teacher right now. That's not in the cards today. I'm taking over. I'll let you be the judge of how well I do that with Gabe in today's conversation. He said the most striking thing to me about a time when I heard him, that he didn't want to be mad with me, and so he deflected it elsewhere. I want to let that conversation speak for itself, but for me, it was very powerful to really hear from him how central the attachment relationship and how much he wanted to continue loving me even when I hurt his feelings. What was also remarkable was how it colored a particular physical place for him. We can all relate to that. The way that we associate places with our emotions, the way a traumatic event can change how we feel about going somewhere. I so appreciate those of you that reach out to me, that let me know that these podcasts connect with you. I don't know sometimes if me opening up in this way has value. I know it is something I love to do. And so when I connect with you, it means a lot. Please email me, feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. Leave a review on Apple. Please subscribe and come find me on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin. Here's my conversation with my son, Gabriel. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Gabe. Hi. It's uh, really cool to have you on my show. You're probably one of the hardest guests for me to interview because you're my son. And I'm usually doing podcasts talking about all kinds of things, but I do talk a lot about parenting. And full disclosure, I tell a lot of stories about me and you. And we're on our summer vacation. We're actually in an apartment in Nice. We just arrived today, and you're going to learn French this week, and I'm going to work. And so we're here in our apartment, and we're going to do a podcast together. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know, what is it like to have your dad doing a podcast, or even to have your dad as a psychologist? Like, what, what well, is it? Well, it, it, like... It depends on, like, what I'm doing. It's like, if you're doing a podcast and you're in the storage room, I don't really care. Like, even if I'm playing with friends, it doesn't matter because it's a thick wall. But, like, a while ago when you were, like, having meetings and sessions and I was playing with my friends, I'd be yelling a lot because I don't, like, I don't want to lose. So I'd just be yelling a lot and you'd get mad at me and, Yeah. So it's it's difficult, but I can find ways around it. You mean that when I'm recording sometimes, or I have or I have sessions, you mean, then you have to kind of keep it down at home if I'm at home? Yes. Got it. Got it. Is it weird to have a dad who talks about parenting? Like, do you ever hear stuff when I'm talking about parenting, or does it... Yeah, it sounds pretty weird, especially my friends are like, okay, but you know that your dad's coming to do a parenting talk? And I'm like, right. what? He didn't tell me. Right. At the school, you mean? Yeah. Got it. I mean, what do you think good parenting is? Like, do you have a sense of what you think good parenting is at your age? You're 10. Uh, like, what comes to mind when you... Um, I think being very accepting 
of their opinion, sexual orientation, gender, political interests, what they want to do, not trying to oppress their opinions. Right. So you mentioned a whole range of actually very difficult issues often that parents face. Politics, sexual orientation, not oppressing what the interests of your kid is. Where have I failed in that matter? Uh, hmm. Like, what is my least shining moment as a parent? Uh, I think it's... Hmm. Hard. I, I don't. I don't really. Like, there aren't many times where you've really been that bad of a parent. But you know, sometimes when like I I am really tired and I don't want to do something that like we like or if like more of we're with friends and I don't want to do something, you can get pretty sensitive because you know we waited so long to do this and now I just don't want to do it. Yeah, that's a great point mentioning getting tired and also when other people are around because that's something actually we look at a lot in research is what we call when like the stakes get higher so if you have expectations or you have friends coming over those are often really tricky moments when you've kind of built something up and you're saying that those are harder moments because if you don't want to do something it's like there's more pressure to do it like it feels like you're feeling pressure to do it well yeah i mean i mean technically if any of my parents are doing something, then automatically I'm pressured to do it with them. Yeah, sure. I know there's a moment that I'm not very proud of, which actually stuck with us for a long time, which was, I think, the second day that we were in Sweden, right? Mm. And we had to go, like, do a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe even been the first day. Yeah, it was first. And... We've had to find the bus, and we had to go to the immigration center, and I think you had, like, your iPad with you, and we were right at the bus place. Or no, you you didn't. You were just frustrated, and I think I got really upset. And I remember that specifically. Like, I got worried that you somehow wouldn't, you know, want to engage with things, and, like, that's not you at all. But I remember in that moment... I kind of sat down with you when we were on the bench, and I think I got, like, really upset. I remember that bench almost became, like, like a bad place for, like, a long time, right? Remember the bench at Udenplan at the... Oh, yeah, I remember it extremely vividly. <laughs> vividly. Like, it's a vivid memory. Yeah, like, still, if I'm hanging out with bad friends, I don't sit there. I'm like, oh, that's bad luck, and my friends know it too now, so they don't sit there either. That bench. That bench. At Odenplan. Yeah, but actually, you were going to talk to me at the other bench. That's, that's where we were sitting. But I knew when he said, hey, Gabe, can you come here for a second? I knew it was about to come. So I moved to that bench and you came to me. Wow. Well, I feel really bad about that. But isn't that amazing how a place like that, like how a place can actually become significant of bad emotion. And you're saying that ever since then, like that, you didn't, you haven't liked that place. Yeah. Wow. And did you feel it in your body? Like, what does it feel like when you go near there? Uh, well, it just, I don't feel anything. I actively make the choice not to sit there. Not to sit there. Yeah. So just for those listening, because perhaps it's a bit vague, we had just moved across the Atlantic from Canada to Sweden 
It was our first or second day in the country. We were exhausted, jet-lagged, and we had all this stuff to do that is not very kid-friendly looking in retrospect. It's nothing that a child would enjoy coming to a new country, having to go to the tax office, having to go to immigration, having to get all kinds of supplies. And I remember specifically as a parent, I got worried that you would somehow not want to kind of do this stuff with us. And I basically read you the riot act, I think, is what I did. I kind of said like, like, we're going to have to do this stuff and you sort of just have to come with us, even if you don't like it. So stop complaining. <laughs> no? What do you remember? What did I say? You basically said that along the lines, but I didn't really feel like, because you had said that stuff before, so it never really came into, like, retrospect, how it would actually affect, like, now that we've come to Sweden. Like, when we got home, we started limiting, like, 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 you started, oh, that's right. Yeah, you started limiting stuff that I was doing online and stuff, so I, like, I can only go for a certain period of time and then I just have to go outside and stuff. So that was the first big shock. Because mm-hmm. when you're like a little kid, your parents have to give you everything. Like, that, that's life. You can't just tell your little baby, sorry. You, you you can't do this. Come with me, right? You, you just can't do that. But I think, like, as kids get older, parents are like, oh, well, he's older now, so he should be maturing, so he should understand that I don't want him to do this stuff, and I yes. want him to do what I want. And that's appropriate or that's not appropriate? It's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. If your child wants to do something, you shouldn't be the most liberal parent in the world. Like, you should still be be conservative about what your child is doing. Like, you shouldn't just let them do anything. But you shouldn't control what they're doing. You should just help them in what they're doing so that they don't, like, ah, I don't really know how to finish my sentence. That's okay. But that makes sense. I think what you're saying is that, you know, you're appreciative as a child gets older that, of course, there should be certain limits. But there's something about these arbitrary rules around time. And certainly looking back at when we first moved here. It felt like I was just kind of arbitrarily organizing time in a way, and and you felt like your own kind of liberty was being taken away from you. Is that fair or? Well, yeah, it's it's like when anti-maskers, but when we say, "Oh, sorry, you have to put on a mask to protect other people," they're like, "Other people? What about myself? I don't feel comfortable doing that. Like, why why should I? That's that's sort of what I felt because I'm like, what if I want to do this? It's not your choice. Mm-hmm. But of course, it comes down to oh, I want to watch some more YouTube or I want to play some more video games. So like, I'm not defending anti-maskers, but I'm just saying that I did feel like my freedom was being dwindled. Well, I think what I didn't do very well looking back was that I was feeling very vulnerable about moving us to a new country. And looking back, I guess I just really wanted us to succeed And I realized that one of the ways that I went about that was actually becoming more restrictive than I usually was back in Canada. I don't think that we really ever had those kinds of rules back in Canada. And and I guess I was responding to my vulnerability of being in a new place by trying to confine things. And you felt that. It didn't make sense to you, did it? It sort of felt like things were happening kind of out of nowhere a little bit. Is that true? Well... You know, I, I think I think you thought that like moving to a new country and like you could maybe like start fresh and stuff, which I totally agree that that's a good place to start fresh. But it made me hate the country 
even even more that I had to like like, like I had I had nothing against the country, but I had something against you. Interesting. So because I don't like I I never want to be mad at you, so I just took it out on like saying uh-huh. oh I just said oh we moved here and that's the only reason that he's being like this. That's so interesting. So like I was saying that like oh if we move back to Canada everything will be fine again. So I was like counting down the days until we were supposed to move back. I actually never knew that. That's so interesting. That reminds me a bit of the movie Inside Out, which in my last oh, podcast yeah. I mentioned that the actual science behind it doesn't make any sense. But the beginning of the movie, right? She moves with her family and her parents are really busy and she just like dreams of moving home because her parents are somehow different. And so you never want to be mad at me. So you're looking back, you you took it out on sort of being in a new place and that you'd wanted to move home. Oh, well, Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, Which has changed, right? That you don't feel yeah, that way anymore. I don't. No. Because you sort of lifted that role. It's like that's right. Because because especially when I got a new computer, because I'm playing with all my friends, so I'm technically I'm socializing. So it's more like you're like, okay, if you want to do something fun in like fifteen twenty minutes, I'm like sure. Hmm. But like if I say, oh sorry, I'm having a lot of fun, you're like, oh yeah, that's fine. Yes. So we've we've shifted around that together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm really sorry I hurt you. I felt terrible and still feel terrible about that moment. And uh, looking back, I realized it was because I just wanted the best for us. But it's really lovely what you said that you, it confused you and it was easier to be mad at moving to Sweden than it was to be mad at me because we love each other. And that's, I talk about that so much that the the confusion in parent-child relationships is that the child doesn't want to be mad at the parent. Like that's because as you said, the child relies on the parent for everything, especially in the beginning. And so it puts you actually in a very difficult place, doesn't it? Because you don't want to be mad at me. So you take out your hurt somewhere else. Well, yeah, like that's why with abusive parents, their their child never really until they realize that what their parents are doing is wrong, which usually happens when they begin puberty because they start maturing, they realize, oh, no, my parents don't love me. They, or no, the abusive parents might still love their children. They, they're they just really confused. They don't know what they're doing and maybe they had their child too soon. So, like, when you have a four-year-old, if you beat your child, they just think you're doing that to help them. They don't realize what you're doing is wrong. So when they go to their friend's house and, you know, their child is like, you know, jokingly being mean to their mom or their dad and, you know, nothing happens to them, they start to wonder, huh, why why are my parents like this? Yes. Yeah, you said so many important things there. The last thing happens a lot, right? That's when kids realize something is wrong at home when they go over to another person's house. And they actually see what safety looks like. And you said that actually when a child is younger and they're being hit or abused, they think they deserve it, right? They don't know anything else. So they just think this is something that we actually saw that the other day at the water park. Oh, yeah. Right? We saw a mom. We're in France. We saw a mom yelling full-blown at her kid in front of others and then... And then hit him. Although I saw that part. I guess you were walking away. Yeah, I was was walking away. I I thought the child just went over there. But I think the child's body is so precious. And I mean, I even get worried sometimes when you and I wrestle, (laughs) uh, which I know is really good for our relationship. But, you know, there's this part of me that's like, I never really want to, you know, you're laughing because you don't experience it that way or. 
Well, well, when I, when I was with my friends, like 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 when I was with some of my old friends in Canada, we would always like bury you under the covers, and we would be like, I would be like, "Can you breathe?" <laughs> and and I, as a joke, it would say no. So so my friends would be like, "Yeah, that's good," and I'd be like, "What? No, it's not." Oh. And I would like take off all the covers. And oh, that's right. I used to pretend you're right, you're right, and then you would start to feel really bad. That's really cute. Yeah, and, and one other thing I'll say, which you said, which is very important, which was that it's actually in our research, it's around the age of 10, that children, your age actually, that children really start to separate themselves from their parents. And we know this actually from uh, family court, where kids will choose under the age of 10 to go home to actually an abusive environment. Whereas after the age of 10, uh, they will readily want to go with a foster family because they start to actually appreciate their own safety or that, that they have other choices, I guess. What do you think I do well as a parent? What do you think has really helped you feel safe? If I have done things that have helped you feel safe, but what can you put your finger on anything that sticks out for you that makes you feel loved or... Uh... Well, you're really accepting. Like, I think I've come out of the closet a few, a few times, and you've been really accepting. And you know, you don't care about my sexual orientation as long as it's, as long as I'm happy. Uh, with my political opinions, I'm not. I I'm independent. I'm not. You know, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. And you you, you support like, you know, you, you support what I believe in. You don't care about my religion as long as I'm happy. You really like. You don't uh, like force like let's say you were uh really liberal or you were yeah let's say you were very right winged or you were very left winged like 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 you you don't push that on me you let me have my own ideas and my mm -hmm. own opinions mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting right that intersection where you have uh, opened up about your sexuality and and it's interesting because I was in theater school very young, and I was exposed to homosexuality at a very young age in writing and theater. I myself, I don't think I've ever told you this, but I also questioned my own sexuality in high school because I went to a school where actually that was really open as well. And this is 25 years ago. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that there's a fluidity in you. In fact, I, I think it's really... Sweet isn't the right word, but I know you to be a very open and thoughtful kid with a big heart. I know your friends love you and look up to you, and teachers are always talking about you being a leader. And the way that I love that you lead is that actually you're, you're just very open, and you have your own sense of humor, and like you said, your own opinions politically. And to be honest with you, Gabe, that actually matters to me more than anything else, that you feel... I don't want to say grounded because we're not always grounded, right? Things change. I don't think it's always a feeling of being grounded, but that you know that you can make your own decisions because I think that's the most powerful thing I can give you. And so you're saying that actually feels good to feel like you can open up. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it feels good because if, a, you know, if someone had homophobic parents or homophobia isn't like, like, like you can't justify homophobia. But like I, I'm saying, it, it can go the other way around. A parent can not like, let's say, um, a child has decided that they don't support 
the LGBTQ community or they they are homophobic. I, I don't think that you should bully them or that if they're not hurting anyone with their opinions, I, I think it's okay to love them as a person. Like, if you're homophobic, but you're not doing anything to the LGBTQ community, you're, like, like you're not forcing it upon them, that's okay. You're, you're allowed to believe in what you want to believe. Like, Got it. Your, your parents shouldn't disown you because you don't want to vote or you don't want to go to the military or you, you don't want to support someone. You know, that's okay. You're not... You're saying there's room, there's room in you for people who may have different points of view, as long as they're not hurting anybody or expressing them in a hurtful way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. People can have differing points of view as long as they're not acting on it in a way that hurts people. That can be hard though in a family though. I mean, do you, do you know anybody? Like, have you seen examples in your own friends? I know you're on social media a lot. Mm. I mean, do you have friends that are suffering already at this age from not being able to talk to their parents or? Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. I have seen it countless times. I'm actually very lucky with, you know, who I have as parents because I know a lot of people who can't come out to their parents they can't talk to them about this stuff because they're scared of what would happen. That must be an awful feeling. It is because because uh, I know that like they're help like they're not helpless. But I, I know that I can't help them. You can't help them. I can't help no. them, and that worries me. You feel helpless. I well, no, we both feel helpless uh -huh. because they know that I can't help them or they can't get help. Yes, because they're stuck. Because they're stuck, and I know that I can't help them. Like, like there's nothing I can do. Hmm. Yeah, I feel a deep sadness in me as you talk about that, because I imagine being small and having no choice but to have to either hide my feelings, or I guess this happens a lot of the time where the child gets angry and then gets blamed for getting angry, right? And so the child is then alone and then getting in trouble for pushing back. Well, yeah, like um, if, let's say someone's getting bullied at school and, you know, it's not safe for them to go to school anymore, but their parents say, you're going to be stupid if you don't go to school, so they send them to school. So it's like they're stuck, like like they can't do anything. They're, they're not safe at home and they're not safe at school. They have nowhere to go. Yeah, all that is such a huge learning curve, isn't it, huh? I mean, my last podcast, Gabe, I, I talked a lot about what the role of the parent is versus the role of the child. So for instance, we talked about how when we sold our house in Canada, and I think you laughed, what did you say to me? Am I gonna cry? Oh, right, because I'm gonna be staying in our house in Canada when I go back in September, but we don't own it anymore, but the new owners have lovingly kept our old suite exactly the way it is. So I get to go and stay there when I go back. But I remember a very distinct moment where I don't know if you remember this game, but I was standing by the stairs. No, that that that's that's the only memory I have of you crying at the house. Right, but there was an earlier moment where you were trying to get my attention, and I was so busy with all the different trades people that were around that you eventually just like you were like dad, 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 and then you just like had to walk away because like I couldn't hear you in the moment. I don't even know if you remember no, that. I, I don't remember. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's happened a lot, especially when you have friends over. So, you know, after a while, like, I, th I think I say Mitch, Mitchell, Mitchell Smolkin, Mitchell Leonard <laughs> Smolkin, Dad, and then if you don't respond, I just walk away. Has that been 
hard because like I've wondered if if as you've gotten older there are moments where there are what we call failures in in attunement where you're trying to get my attention and and I can't respond to you like are those difficult moments or do you find as you get older it, you understand I'm with friends and busy or what mm. well it, it doesn't get easier, but it gets. It doesn't get easier to deal with, but it gets easier to understand. Because uh-huh. like, if I need to ask you a question, I just save the question, or something. But if it's really urgent, then I don't stop, and I'm like, Mitch, like, like if, yeah, if, if, if it's urgent, I'm like, Mitch, get over here, and I don't stop. Like I slap you, or no, I don't slap you, <laughs> but, but, but 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 like I playfully hit you. Like, yeah, Mitch. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And that's important, I think, just to mention is is there's something called the dissociability of the psyche, which means that that we're always going in and out. We're always dissociating sometimes, like in a conversation. Has it ever happened to you where you're talking to someone, your mind wanders, and you're thinking about somebody, something else, and you're not following what they're saying anymore? Yeah, you're laughing, right? Yeah, that 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 happens. Well, no, it doesn't usually happen with friends, but it happens when I'm talking to adults. Uh-huh. It's, it's like, they're, it, it's, it's like they're, they're, if they're giving me a big lecture about something I already know, and they're like, oh, yeah, so what do you think about that? And I'm like... <laughs> right. It just right. kind of, right, you tune out. Cool. Is there anything else that you'd want people to know who are listening to this? Because a lot of adults listen to this. Like, if you had the ear of parents out there right now, is there anything you would want to tell them before we wrap up our interview Uh, together? What hmm. would be the most important thing you would want them to know about raising their kids? Uh, Just if you're going to have a kid, then just support them no matter what and don't force anything upon them and just accept them. And if they want to maybe like have a new social media or something, like like check it out first but you know if, if they if they want to have it i think uh, i think they're accepting consequences that can happen online and they, they should they should just accept it so and it, you should accept it too you know if they don't like this and then if they're gonna pay with their own money and everything let them get it let them make their own decisions yeah yeah because otherwise they're gonna be what we call so we had a lesson at school uh in the library or something and they were talking about the, like there are two types of people and it's called the, the penguin and the lion. And the penguin is like, you rely on all your friends and like, you're very extroverted and you're, and you work as a team. And then the lion, where you're quite introverted and you usually work independently. So I'm saying that if your kid wants, like, if your kid's going to be independent, then like the first step is them making their own decisions. Yes. I think what you're talking about is trust, no? That, like, and you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the reasons that I give you so much freedom is because I feel like the more that you feel trusted, Gabe, the more you feel comfortable coming to me. Like, I feel like, I mean, obviously there are things in your life as you get older that I don't know about because it's not appropriate or they're your friends or they're, you know, stories or secrets or jokes between your friends but but my sense is that the more you feel like you're trusted the more that if something is wrong or that you don't feel something is right that I'm the first person or mommy's the first person you'll come to because 
because you're not, you're not, you don't have to hide anything. And so there's no anxiety around that has been my sense. Like, I just feel like we're really open with each other. Well, yeah. Like, like I trust you a lot not to like freak out or anything. So it's like, if I see something really hilarious, but it's like quite racy or it's pretty inappropriate, then I'm like, parts of my body say, no, don't show it to him. But I'm like, I'll show it to him. What's the worst that can happen? Right. Right. And then he bursts out laughing. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> well, that's one of my favorite things with you, actually, is that we, uh, I mean, we started watching some pretty racy <laughs> movies quite young, and I didn't know what to do about that. I still don't know. It'll, it'll, the future will, will tell. But I, I feel like certainly it created an opportunity for us to share a sense of humor, to laugh. We were telling jokes at dinner today that you know. Well, anyway, thank you for coming on the podcast, yeah. and I, I look forward. Will you come back down the road? We can check in together when yeah, you're a bit sure. older. And uh, so, uh, how much am I getting paid for this? <laughs> we'll talk about that off air. Okay. <laughs> Love you, buddy. Love you too. I had no idea how that would go. I mean, I love talking to my son about emotions, maybe to a fault, but to have him share parts of his life that I hadn't quite understood or appreciated before really struck me and made me feel like this was worthwhile. And how cool is it also to hear him share from his own perspective what helps him and what he believes would help people like him or his friends at that age to really feel safe and understood. I'm proud that we were able to open up about difficult stuff with you, our listeners. And on that note, I would really appreciate your feedback if you have the time. It would mean a lot to me. You can reach me at feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com or on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin. Until next time, I remain faithfully yours. <laughs>